future could be brilliant. A personal inquiry into why much of the world seems crazy and what to do about it. Part 6. But it's always been like this. When considering the distortions in human culture, it's hard not to conclude that it's always been this way. Not according to Maria Gambutis. In fact, she tells of a time when life was very, very different. Maria was a Lithuanian-American, a linguist and archaeologist. She became known in the 1950s and 60s for her study of old European culture, And although she died in 1994, she's still respected as one of the world's leading authorities on prehistoric Europe. She made a remarkable discovery while excavating a number of Neolithic sites in southeastern Europe. The initial evidence on Earth was of a history of brutality and savagery, and this fitted with the prevailing view of a past underpinned by warfare, conflict and inequality but she persisted by literally digging deeper and unearthed evidence of an earlier and surprisingly different culture. She spent her life gathering, researching and studying evidence of this earlier time and talks confidently of an era when Western civilization flourished without war, without hierarchical oppression and without scarcity. A time when there was little or no evidence of defensive settlements or weapons. Thousands of years when people lived in relative peace with each other and in harmony with the world around them. It's tempting to idealise this period in our history. Some refer to it as the Eden time. I'm sure there must have been conflicts and difficulties between people and tribes, but murder and mayhem were clearly very rare. People hunted and they had the means to capture and kill animals, but Maria found little of any evidence of the hunting and killing of people by people. Studies of the burial remains throughout this period of some 5,000 years showed little or no evidence of the aggrandizement of anyone, no sign of people lording it over others. 98% of the sculptures and symbols found depict images of the female, not the male, of a goddess, not of a god. Taken as a sign of a matriarchal culture, I suspect this might more accurately be seen as evidence of a balanced culture, where people experience themselves as part of nature, part of the whole of creation. The scholar Rianne Eisler describes it as a partnership culture, an equal partnership between men, women and the natural world. Given the context within which I started this discourse about the imminent potential for extreme environmental damage caused by our divorce from nature, it's really valuable to realise that there were, are, other healthier ways to live. Maria describes what she calls the time of the goddess culture. Graves were egalitarian. No difference in the graves and burials based on wealth or gender. Each individual was respected for his own values. Symbols were placed in the graves which characterised the person, his craftsmanship or importance in the religious life, for instance, but not as a rich man or poor man. 
There were no rich or poor graves in all the European cemeteries. It was an egalitarian society. There was no evidence of human sacrifice in old European rituals. The sacrificial materials were seeds or foods, mostly vegetarian stuff. Also, there was no evidence of scarcity. Southeast Europe especially had a rich agriculture. This was a peaceful agrarian culture that existed for thousands of years. So you may ask, if this was so natural, what happened to it? How come it changed? This to me is the multi-million dollar question. Maria maps the arrival in Europe of people she calls the Kurgans, Indo-Europeans who arrived on horseback, tooled up as they say, and to put it politely, with a seriously bad attitude. So bad that it allowed them to ruthlessly attack and prey on the relatively peaceful indigenous population in a way that must have horrified and traumatised everyone. The evidence from burials showed a dramatic shift in culture. Human sacrifice begins with the Indo-Europeans within Europe. Wherever we excavate, we find pits with murdered people and we find weapons, together, spears and daggers. Animals were also sacrificed with burials. The quantities of animals buried with the man depended on how important the man was. There were sometimes ten or more animals buried with them. This is not found in old Europe at all. Maria became appalled by the savagery and brutality of that culture, where kings were buried with all their wealth, and their wives and concubines and servants were buried alive along with them. It was a violent, hierarchical system. Kel Kearns in his Sounds True Recordings of Maria sums it up. When we use the terms Indo-European, Aryan or Kurgans, we're talking about the same people. A savage, warlike, patriarchal group of tribes who defined power and wealth by the number of horses or cattle they herded, and by the number of women they owned. These domesticated animals and concubines were acquired mostly from other tribes, which they conquered and destroyed. Their movement across Europe and India began in the fourth millennium before the Christian era, but it took well over a thousand years for their influence to sublimate the already ancient civilization of the great goddess they were to become the forefathers of Western civilization. Power in their world belonged to the most brutal, a definition that still largely applies to men seeking advancement in the hierarchy of today. Some scholars think this change is just a development or evolution from what already existed. But Maria sees it as a clash between two very different ideologies, a clash between the goddess civilization and a new patriarchal warrior culture. Rianne Eisler in The Chalice and the Blade describes it as a clash between a partnership culture and a dominance culture. Slowly, as the old Europeans for the most part unsuccessfully try to protect themselves from their barbaric invaders, new definitions of what is normal for both society and ideology begin to emerge. Everywhere now we see the shift in social priorities that is like an arrow shot through time to pierce our age with its nuclear tip. The power to dominate and destroy through the sharp blade gradually supplants the view of power 
as the capacity to support and nurture life. Now, everywhere the men with the greatest power to destroy, the physically strongest, most insensitive, most brutal, rise to the top, as everywhere the social structure becomes more hierarchical and authoritarian. Women, who as a group are physically smaller and weaker than men, and who are most closely identified with the old view of power, symbolised by the life-giving chalice, are now gradually reduced to the status they are to hold hereafter, male-controlled technologies of production and reproduction. Maria tries to understand this radical shift in culture. In every aspect of culture we have a clash. In religion especially, in everything else, the art is also showing the same. The habitation pattern is different. The administration system is different. There are scholars who think that we have just to see the materialistic world and see how it changes. I think this is the biggest mistake, a real misunderstanding. This cannot have happened because European culture later on is a hybrid culture, consisting of two very different genealogies, and we are the heirs of this hybrid culture. Maria shows that the idea of ownership and property was the exact opposite in the two cultures. The aggrandisement of individuals, the brutality, the inequality, the degradation of women are dramatic changes and, as she says, existed in parallel with a very different older and gentler culture rather than having evolved naturally from it. Colin Barris, writing in The New Scientist in 2019, asks if these almost unbelievably violent people were the most murderous in history. Recent DNA evidence shows that shortly after their eventual conquest of Britain, the indigenous people who built Stonehenge were effectively wiped out. A pattern of genocide is evident wherever they went. In contrast, research from University College London supports Maria's findings that earlier human cultures were more egalitarian and that men and women had equal influence and the studies of Douglas Fry and Patrick Soderberg in Finland also conclude that hunter-gatherer societies are largely peaceful, implying that war is a relatively recent concept and not an integral part of the human condition. It's often suggested that it was the introduction of agriculture that changed things, but Maria's evidence says that agriculture had been developed for a long time before violence and warfare came into play. In the light of our current knowledge, it seems entirely possible that this change was not a result of changes in agriculture and animal domestication, but the first sign of the sociopathic distortion of a humane and harmonious lifestyle. In populations throughout the world, individuals with the characteristics we describe as sociopathic arise from time to time. In every generation, there are those who lack empathy and conscience and have no internal inhibition against preying on their fellow humans. Anecdotal accounts from the Inuit suggest that when they recognise one of their own as having these characteristics, they quietly slide them off an ice floe when no one is looking. Similar accounts from tribes in Papua New Guinea suggest that a similar outcome might await any young men who are detrimental to the cohesion and survival of the tribe. It's not unreasonable to assume that this fate escaped a Kurgan boy 
with severe antisocial characteristics, and he eventually established himself as their tyrannical leader and changed the course of human history. The subjugation of women that arose at this time is to me one of the clearest and most disturbing signs of a sad culture, a sociopathic and authoritarian distortion. When I got into a second-class railway carriage as a child and was confronted by segregation for the first time, little did I realise that women were double victims, segregated by class and gender. Even with the advances in women's rights over the ensuing years, equality for many, many women in the world is still a distant dream, or perhaps a distant memory. More disturbingly, serious abuse of women still seems endemic in many cultures, with FGM a particularly offensive and grotesque example. Kel Cairns sums it up concisely. The war on the divine feminine has gone on unabated for 5,000 years. At first, the patriarchal usurpers tended to assimilate and diminish the great goddess. But gradually, as male-dominant wealth, power and ambition grew, embodied in the priesthood and the state, so grew the need to demonise and destroy vestiges of the old natural religion which worshipped the ways of the earth instead of the power of men. And most tellingly, he goes on to say, And eventually, women themselves became demonised. As we know, not only our mothers, sisters, wives and daughters have been paying the price, but Mother Earth herself is suffering deeply. And yet, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we've made considerable strides over the years. The green shoots of a more balanced, healthier and natural culture are clearly visible. As Fritjof Capra would remind us, the new order may not be far away. Rianne Eisler offers us some hope. If enough of us join together, we can halt the drift back to domination, that if we hold fast in our resolve, we can put into action our vision of creating a partnership world. And particularly at a time when what is daily presented to us by the media as news focuses almost exclusively on the bad news, on violence and regression and repression, we need many such reminders, lest we forget that each of us can make a difference, that in the end, the choice of what kind of world we live in is up to every one of us. In the next episode, so what can we do 